Everybody loves a good mystery, right? Today on the Bible Mystery Podcast, we are busting some more myths about the Shroud of Turin. Has it been replicated? Does the Catholic Church officially endorse it? John Walsh, in his 1960s book on the Shroud, said this, The Shroud of Turin is either the most awesome and instructive relic of Jesus Christ in existence, or it is one of the most ingenious, most unbelievably clever products of the human mind and hand on record. It is one or the other. There is no middle ground. That's a pretty good statement, and I think a pretty... A fair description of what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the Shroud of Turin. Either that thing is an incredibly ingenious Middle Ages um, falsely uh, produced relic, or it's the real thing. Either one of those things makes the Shroud fairly uh, interesting as a historical artifact, but one way or the other, the shroud is indubitably a fascinating object. I did a recent, uh, this was around July of 2019, survey of Baptist pastors in a forum on Facebook that I'm part of. And I asked them, at least those that responded to the poll, how many of them believed that the shroud of Turin was the genuine burial cloth of Jesus? Only 35 Less than 5% of Baptist pastors surveyed believed that it was the genuine burial cloth of Jesus. About half of them were unsure, uh, but and then around 41% of them believed the shroud to be a forgery. Now, a different group, uh, the Astonishing Legends Facebook group. This is a group of people who would be very interested in mysteries such as this and got a lot of responses, uh, well over 300. 38% of those people believed the shroud to be a be a hoax, which is pretty close to the 41% of the pastors who believe the shroud to be a hoax. But there were more true believers in the Astonishing Legends paranormal group with 37 out of 350, which works out to around 11% believing that the shroud was the genuine burial cloth of Jesus. I take from that that most people do not think the shroud is the burial cloth of Jesus, even people interested in that sort of thing. But I'm actually a little surprised by that because, quite frankly, the more I've studied the shroud, the more I've seen reasons to believe that it might just be a real, historical, non-hoaxed, burial cloth dating from the first century, and based on all the evidences on the cloth, it could even be the burial cloth of Jesus. Today in the show, we're going to continue to bust some myths about the shroud. Uh, And then finally, we're going to finish up our examination of the Shroud of Turin in the next episode. It'll be our concluding episode in which I'll present, I don't know, 10 or 15 pro and con arguments either way about the Shroud. And then we will move on to some more interesting Bible mysteries. I do want to point you to the website, BibleMysteryPod.com. That's where you can find out more about the show, see some past episodes, that kind of thing. Of course, we're also on iTunes and pretty much every other podcatcher out there. It would be awesome if you would go and leave a five-star review, especially on iTunes, because that really helps us reach more people, as does subscribing to the show. So thank you for that, those who have done so. All right, myth one number one for today. Most people assume that the Catholic Church has officially endorsed the Shroud of Turin, but in fact, it appears that the Catholic Church did not even have official possession of the Shroud until recently, 1983, when the Royal House of Savoy conveyed ownership of the Shroud to the Holy See. If you maybe remember your AP Modern European History, which I don't remember a ton of, but some, you might remember that the Savoys began as a small ruling family in the Northwest Alps of Italy, below Switzerland, and grew to become the dominant royal family in Italy for a time, basically reigning from the middle 1800s to around 1946, 
They also had brief rulership in Spain in the 1800s. Although the Catholic Church does not have an official position on the shroud, there are several popes and other church officials who have commented favorably on it, and even some who have commented less than favorably on it. So I'm going to read a few of those comments. Uh, one of the recent popes, uh, Cardinal Ratzenberger, Pope Benedict, who he called the shroud a truly mysterious image which no human artistry was capable of producing. In some inexplicable way, it appeared imprinted upon cloth and claimed to show the true face of Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. Now, that was when uh, that was said when Ratzenberger was a cathedral before he became the Pope, so that's not considered an official endorsement of the Church. Earlier than Ratzenberger, Pope Pius II in 1936 says this, These are not pictures of the Blessed Virgin, it is true, but pictures that remind us of her as no other can, since they are pictures of her divine Son. And so we can truly say the most moving, loveliest, dearest ones that we can imagine. Now, if you're like me, you're kind of crumpling up your eyebrows at that quote. What a strange quote. And it seems to me that Pope Pius was suggesting that a likeness or picture of Mary, the mother of Jesus, would be more remarkable than pictures of Jesus, the Son of God. Just stepping aside here, when any theology places more attention, emphasis, and weight on Mary, the mother of Jesus, than they do on Jesus, the Savior, and the Son of God, that's where I have a massive problem with that theology. Uh, that quote comes from a book called The Shroud, A Guide by Gino Moretto. And I've actually looked for that quote by Pius II in a lot of different places and haven't found it. So for now, we're going to consider that quote a little suspect and definitely eyebrow raising. Pope John Paul II who is a very well-known pope to people that are in their 30s and 40s, this is what he said. Since it's not a matter of faith, the church has no specific competence to pronounce on these questions. He said that in 1998. In other words, they, we're not going to make an official um, endorsement of the shroud. He also said this, The Holy Shroud is the most splendid relic of the passion and resurrection. We become what we contemplate. Why don't we contemplate the icon of icons, the holy face of Jesus? Instead of icons made by man, let us venerate the greatest icon of all, the holy face of Jesus. He also said, the shroud is an image of God's love as well as of human sin, the imprint left by the tortured body of the crucified one, which attests to the tremendous human capacity for causing pain and death to one's fellow man stands, it stands as an icon of the suffering of the innocent in every age. So it sounds like on the surface at least, Pope John the Paul II did consider the shroud somewhat authentic, if not you know, absolutely authentic. It sounds like he's talking about the shroud as it is a real the real burial cloth of Jesus. Pope Francis, however, the most the, the current Pope most recently talked about the shroud um, during his first Easter address. And this is a bit of a long quote, but it's very interesting. And I'll, I'll read it and see if you come to the same conclusion I did. This is, again, Pope Francis, his first Easter address a couple of years ago. Dear brothers and sisters, I join all of you gathered before the Holy Shroud, and I thank the Lord for offering us this opportunity Thanks also to new devices, we do not merely look if we are looking at it. It's not a simple look, but it is a form of veneration, a look of prayer, and also it is a way of letting him look at us. The face has eyes that are closed. It is the face of one who is dead, and yet mysteriously he is watching us, and in silence he speaks to us. How is this possible? How is it that the faithful, like you, pause before this icon of a man scourged and crucified? It is because the man of the shroud invites us to contemplate Jesus of Nazareth. The image impressed upon the cloth speaks to our heart and moves us to climb the hill of Calvary, to look upon the wood of the cross and to immerse ourselves in the eloquent silence of love. 
Let us therefore allow ourselves to be reached by this look, which is directed not to our eyes, but to our heart. In silence, let us listen to what he has to say to us from beyond death itself. By means of the holy shroud, the unique and supreme word of God comes to us, love made man incarnate in our history, the merciful love of God who has taken upon himself all the evil of the world to free us from its power. This disfigured face resembles all those faces of men and women marred by a life which does not respect their dignity by war and violence, which afflict the weakest. And yet, at the same time, the face in the shroud conveys a great peace. This tortured body expresses a sovereign majesty. It is as if it let a restrained but powerful energy within it shine through, as if to say, have faith, do not lose hope. The power of the love of God, the power of the risen one, overcomes all things. So, looking upon the man of the shroud, I make my own the prayer of which St. Francis of Assisi prayed before the crucifix. Most high glorious God, enlighten the shadows of my heart and grant me a right faith, a certain hope and perfect charity, sense and understanding, Lord, so that I may accomplish your holy and true command. There was a Catholic commentator on that speech of St. Francis, and he said this, he wrote this, The shroud draws people to the tormented face and body of Jesus, and at the same time directs people toward the face of every suffering and unjustly persecuted person. That's a quote from the speech, and then he says this, This is condemning the shroud with faint praise and reinforces that Pope Francis really does think that the shroud is just another fake icon. I, I agree with that commentator. Reading between the lines of St. Francis's or Pope Francis's pronunciation speech, it's quite clear that he's either a shroud agnostic or even thinks it might be a forgery because he keeps referring to the face of the man in the shroud as simply that, the man in the shroud. He doesn't refer to it as Jesus. He says it makes us think about Jesus. Now, he might be right on that, that it is it is absolutely a forgery. He might even know, given his position, and it is evidential to me, in other words, it's meaningful evidence to me that Pope Francis seems to doubt the veracity of the shroud. And it seems to me that, is just over the years in the Catholic Church, even among the, the Catholic leaders, the opinions on the authenticity of the Shroud are quite varied. It appears that more Catholic leaders consider the Shroud authentic than leaders of other major religious groups, of course, but the fact that the Vatican has stopped short of pronouncing the Shroud uh, genuine should give us pause. Do they have reason to suspect its inauthenticity? Unreleased reasons? It's very possible they do. In fact, I consider this one of the greatest arguments against the genuineness of the Shroud, the simple fact that the Vatican has not come out and officially pronounced it a relic. Well, I'll say this. I don't understand religious veneration of objects. I don't find it biblical. It seems completely contra to the clear teachings of the Old and New Testaments. Some branches of Christianity do venerate objects, but I think they're missing it. If the shroud is authentic, then it's fascinating. It's wonderful. It's amazing, but not at all worthy of a single ounce or even a gram of religious devotion. If it is inauthentic, it's less worthy of any religious devotion or veneration. Either way, though, it is a fascinating artifact. If it is genuine, it's one of the greatest treasuries of history, and it should be in our finest museum, absolutely. Just don't worship it. It's a linen cloth. It didn't die for you. It has no power to save you. If you touch it, nothing special will happen apart from the power of God. And I see no 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 indication that it holds any sort of special significance to God. Now, I understand that if it really is the burial cloth of Jesus, that's incredible. It's amazing. I collect things. I collect autographs. I collect sports cards. One of the most interesting cards I have is not a sports card at all. It's a, it's an Elvis Presley card. And in the middle of the card, it's one of those very thick kind of cards. It has a 
a genuine about, I don't know, it's about half a square inch, a genuine piece of cloth in the middle of the card, like framed by plastic, and it is from a jacket that Elvis Presley sang in and wore. If I had the shirt, the whole jacket, what would that help me? Would it help me dance better? Would it help me sing better? Would it help me become more famous? Would it help the podcast? Would it help my books? Would it help my church? Of course not. Could I bring it to Graceland and get free entry into Graceland and Memphis for wearing it? Could I take it to surviving members of Elvis's family and ask to become an honorary Presley because I have that jacket or even a piece of it? Of course, none of those things. It wouldn't help with any of those things. Um, I like that card. It's one of my favorite cards, but it's not, it doesn't bring me any closer to Elvis or his family or the place where he used to live or anything like that. And the shroud would get you less far in heaven. The Presley jacket would get you at Graceland. So what should we do if the shroud is inauthentic? If it's really a great hoax, should we burn it? Should we throw it away? Nah, of course we shouldn't. I still believe it belongs in our finest museum of art as opposed to a museum of history because if it is just art, even hoax art, it's still incredible art. It's mystifying. It's awe-inspiring. It's amazing. Whatever it is, though, the Vatican isn't saying for sure one way or another. They appear to be fans, or at least most of them, but in a mostly unofficial capacity. So, you might think the Catholic Church has endorsed the Shroud and has put it forward as authentic, but that myth is busted. They have not. It appears there are varying opinions in the Vatican and have been for years over the authenticity of the Shroud. Now, second myth. This is one we're only going to halfway bust because... My experience with this um, situation is less than ideal, but many have claimed to have recreated the shroud using medieval techniques. One of the major issues that has surrounded the shroud from the beginning has been that, up until recently, some skeptics agreed that the way that the shroud, even skeptics agreed that the way the shroud was produced in the Middle Ages would be unknown and thus coming up a way that a medieval forger could make such a thing would be quite difficult because even in modern times, again, up until recently, nobody knew how a person could forge such an instrument, I mean, such an image without with medieval equipment and medieval instruments of art. There have been other ancient technologies that have been some, somewhat of a mystery to modern man. Damascus steel, for instance, for those of you who are into knives and swords and things like that. Damascus steel has not been inarguably replicated by modern blacksmiths. Roman concrete has a kind of durability that modern concrete lacks, and scientists are only recently discovering some of the secrets to the longevity of Roman concrete. Archimedes is said to have developed a sort of heat ray that was actually powerful enough to burn up boats from a significant distance away. But it's difficult for us to replicate such a ray using the technology that Archimedes would have had 200 years before the birth of Jesus. To that at list, we probably should add the shroud. If it's a forgery, it's an incredibly sophisticated, impressive, and technologically advanced forgery. Now, you may have heard of the writer N.D. Wilson. In the mid-2000s, Christianity Today ran an article called Father Brown Fakes the Shroud, and that's a must-read for shroud enthusiasts if you can get your hand on a copy. Unfortunately, the only possible way to read it is to get that issue of Christianity Today from 2005 uh, in a library somewhere, or pay Christianity Today for $30 for a digital subscription, which is what I did, unfortunately. And I read the article. Fifteen years ago, the writer N.D. Wilson supposedly figured out 
how one might fake the Shroud of Turin. And since that time, I've heard several people say or intimate that the Shroud had conclusively been proven a fraud with the one-two punch of number one, 1988 medieval dating, and number two, Wilson's reproduction and the other reproductions of other artists and writers and scientists who claim to have come up with a very reasonable shroud facsimile that matches the shroud in most respects and was done with medieval technology. So, reading the article and getting into the nitty-gritty, Wilson's method of duplicating the shroud is ingenious. Basically, he and an artist friend painted a reverse image, not on the cloth, but on a large pane of glass, and then had the sun shine through that image onto a linen cloth over a period of several days. The sun bleached the cloth, lighter in some areas with heavy paint, and darker in areas of light paint. The resulting image does kind of look fairly authentic and shroud-like to the naked eye. It does prove that it is possible with the right equipment and the right level of ingenuity to put a negative-like image, similar to the shroud, onto a linen cloth. But some people have raised objections into what Smith's work produced. Here's a few of them. Number one, the Shroud of Turin apparently contains pollen from plants only found in Palestine. That would be difficult for a European forger to get. For one, he would have no idea that such a thing could potentially authenticate the Shroud. You wouldn't be thinking thoughts like that in the the 1500s because there would be no way to test for something like that. Uh, Or the 1300s or 1400s. Wilson notes that the cloth could have been procured for a from a first century Jewish grave, which would explain some of those things. And I suppose that is technically possible, but my goodness, that is a long way to go to produce a hoax. And and again, in terms of 1300s, 1400s or whatever, at a time when you don't have any sort of way to scientifically test a cloth for how old it is, it seems extreme that a hoaxer would set about to, to acquire first century cloth from Palestine to use for his hoax. That's a little bit weird. Second objection. The figure in the shroud is pierced through his wrists, not through his hands. Now, this is sort of uh, an objection or an apologetic for the genuineness of the shroud in general. The reason why that is significant is because it has only been in the recent years that discovered that crucified people would have had to have been pierced through their wrists and not their hands in order to actually be suspended from a cross. This does not at all contradict the Bible accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus, because the Greek word used for hands can also include the wrist area, unlike our English word, which more clearly delineates between the two. But here's the thing. Almost the totality of medieval art from around the time when the shroud would have supposedly been forged depicts the nails in Jesus's... uh, would depict the nails in Jesus's hands, not in his wrists. If the shroud were a forgery, it is incredibly remarkable that the forger would have somehow known to include nail holes in the wrists rather than in the hands. Number three objection. I myself have Obviously not an expert on 1300s era glass technology, but some who are have argued that the kind of large and flat pane windows that Smith would have had to have used to sun bleach this painted image of a man onto a large linen cloth would simply not have been available in the early medieval period. They didn't have glass like that. I think that's a fairly strong objection that I didn't find anywhere in Wilson's 
Times article that he addressed fully. Objection number four. The figure on the shroud, according to most scientists who have examined it, has real wounds and real blood. This, of course, means that it was more than merely a sun-bleached image. Wilson contends that somebody had to have been murdered in order for forgers to make the shroud using this method. Now, I guess that's technically possible. But here's the thing. Again, thinking in terms of 1300s hoaxing, it's strange, really strange, that a hoaxer would, instead of using paint or pigment or something like that, which would certainly pass for blood to the medieval eye, and there's no way to really test whether it's blood or not in the 1300s, why would he use real blood to pull off a hoax when such extreme steps is not necessary given the technology of the day. You could see how today, if someone were trying to hoax up a a thing like this, that they would have to use real blood. They would have to use first century cloth because they would know all such things would be tested. But in the 1300s, people aren't even thinking along those lines because there's no way to test for blood. There's no way to carbon test uh, for dating or anything like that. So so it's certainly possible, as Wilson claims, that somebody could have been killed or at least a lot of their blood used to make the shroud. It seems strange that such a thing would be necessary. Fifth objection. It appears to some, this is very controversial, it appears to some that the figure in the shroud has coins in its eyes and the type of coins appear to be first century coins that would have been commonly used in Israel during the time of Christ. That a medieval forger would add such a detail is fairly astonishing. Of course, as with every thing surrounding the shroud, others, and Wilson too, I presume, argue that there are no coin impressions in the eyes of the shroud figure, just something that appears to be coin impressions. Number six, objection against the possibility that the shroud has been the shroud has been replicated if the shroud is a forgery those who painted the image on the glass had a remarkable and accurate knowledge of the full details of roman crucifixion and how the body would have responded to such crucifixion additionally the anonymous forgers would have had to have a strong knowledge of anatomy wound effects etc because the wounds on the shroud figure are quite consistent with what modern medical technology would expect nd wilson contends that there were many medieval people with deep and accurate knowledge of anatomy and the only reason we don't expect the forgers to have such knowledge is because we have a sort of bias against people from the past and assume they are unsophisticated and unintelligent and i agree such bias is real you see it in history i will readily admit that's true but it does seem that medical history of the past 500 years demonstrates that medieval medicine and anatomy was quite primitive. So would these forgers have the artistic skill and the medical skill and the theological knowledge to be able to produce such a thing? And I'm not sure the answer is yes. It is quite clear that Wilson has produced an interesting object, but I don't think he's fully replicated the shroud. So did he definitively prove that medieval forgers could have produced the shroud? Maybe, maybe not. Even Wilson himself admits I've not proved much, or I don't think I have. Men and women who have believed in the shroud will probably continue to believe. There's a fireman somewhere in Italy who risked his life to save the shroud from fire. I have great respect for that man, says Wilson. Perhaps I've given those who disbelieve more reason to have their noses lifted in the air. But I have not proved that the shroud was faked. What I have done is crudely demonstrate that such an image could be produced in a matter of weeks by wicked men with no scruples, a little imagination, and a little more skill. The fact that it could have been faked does not mean that it was, though I believe it to have been. Now, the one area I'll disagree with Wilson's conclusion there is I think 
it would take wicked men having a bit more than a little imagination and a little skill to have pulled off the Shroud of Truin. That's an incredibly sophisticated 1300s hoax, if it's true. It's probably technically possible, but it's really assuming an extreme amount of skill and knowledge and other things coming together on the part of these hoaxers. And I'm not sure what the play is. Like, I'm not sure what they hope to gain out of it. Because the early history of the Shroud, uh, during the lifetime of the Forger, to be sure, doesn't seem to indicate that it really benefited anybody personally and financially all that much. There have been other attempts to recreate the Shroud, as I mentioned earlier. In 2009, for instance, a University of Pavia organic chemistry professor and skeptic society member named Luigi Garlaschelli also produced a fairly convincing, at first glance, reproduction. He says this about his attempt. What you have now is a very fuzzy, dusty, and weak image. For the sake of completeness, I have added the blood stains, the burns, the scorching, because there was a fire in 1532. Garlis Kelly says his work disproves the claims of some of the Shroud's strongest supporters. He says this, basically the Shroud of Turin has some strange properties and characteristics that they say cannot be re reproduced by human hands. For example, the image is superficial and it has no pigment. It looks so lifelike and so on, and therefore they say it cannot have been done by an artist. He continues, the procedure is very simple. The artist took the sheet and put it over one of his assistants. His good idea was to wrap the sheet over the person underneath because he didn't want to obtain an image that was too obviously a painting or a drawing. So with this procedure, you get a strange image. Time did the rest. As you might imagine, there are several people who disagree that Garlaskelli has produced a convincing replica. Dr. Tebolt Heimberger has written an extensive and scientific rebuttal of Garlaskelli's method, essentially arguing that it doesn't really duplicate the elements of the shroud, but it's only sort of a superficial likeness. His paper, paper which is linked in the show notes at BibleMysteryPod.com, concludes this way. Garlis Kelly concluded, we have also shown that pigments containing traces of acidic compounds can be artificially aged after the rubbing step in such a way that when the pigment is washed away, an image is obtained having the expected characteristics as the Shroud of Turin. In particular, the image is pseudo-negative, is fuzzy with halftones, resides on the topmost fibers of the cloth, has some 3D embedded properties, and does not fluoresce. I, says Dr. Heimberger, I think to the contrary that the image produced by Garlaskelli has none of these characteristics except negativity and non-fluorescence. Garlaskelli used a sophisticated method and a new interesting hypothesis and he got the best shroud-like uh, shroud image today. It is interesting to notice that even given that, the properties of his image remain in fact very far from the fundamental properties of the genuine shroud. For the moment, says Dr. Thibault Heimberger, the shroud image remains unfakeable. There's also uh, a debunking of Garlaskelli's work by shroud blogger Stephen Jones that you can find at theshroudofturin.blogspot.com. So have we busted the myth that modern scientists and textile experts, etc., have reproduced the shroud using medieval methods? And I think the answer is we haven't fully busted it. So let's give that a maybe. I am incredulous that the Shroud is a medieval hoax just simply because it would have required so much skill and knowledge to pull off. But I readily admit it does appear the Shroud could have possibly been produced in the Middle Ages. It's possible. I just don't think I've seen convincing evidence that modernity has shown how it could have been done. 
All right, so the next shroud, uh, the next shroud myth we're going to look at is number three today. The complex herringbone twill pattern of the shroud, many have said, was not possible in the first century. It was too advanced of a stitching to be first century cloth. Shroud skeptics have speculated that the particular pattern of sewing used on the shroud itself is too complex and advanced to have been created in the Middle Ages, I mean, in, in, in the Middle East and first century Palestine. In the summer of 2000, archaeologist James Tabor, who you might remember from the whole uh, Jesus tomb controversy of a few years ago, and Shimon Gibson stumbled upon a freshly robbed first century grave just outside of Jerusalem. Amazingly, that first century grave still had bodies in it, and one of those bodies was encased in a somewhat intact, considering how old it was, first century shroud. That was, as far as I know, the first shroud from the first century in that area recovered near Jerusalem. James Tabor writes about that discovery on his blog in a way that is very dismissive of the possibilities of the Turin shroud being authentic. This is what Tabor says. Although first century cloth has been found at Masada and in caves in the Judean desert, nothing of this sort, like the shroud, has ever been found in Jerusalem. Apparently that niche, sealed with blocking stone, had a geological fissure that kept water from seeping in and rotting the material. The tomb had any number of interesting features. DNA studies were done on all the individuals represented in the tomb. The first time, as far as we know, this has been done in an ancient Jerusalem tomb of this period. Textile analysis was done on the cloth. It turned out to be a mixture of linen and wool, not woven together, but layered with a separate headpiece. It had a distinctive first century weave in contrast to the Shroud of Turin. In other words, what Tabor is saying is the Shroud of Turin is obviously not first century cloth. It was too complex. If you look at sites like CNN and BBC, when they covered this, they took what Tabor said and ran with it a little bit further and concluded the, sh the Shroud was fake from the CNN article, which was dated to, I think, late 2000, early 2001, said this. In addition, the weave of the shroud raises fresh doubts about the shroud, the weave of the shroud that was found, that is, raises fresh doubts about the shroud of Turin, which many people believe was used to wrap the body of Jesus. According to researchers involved in the excavation and subsequent testing, the recently discovered shroud lends more credible evidence that the shroud of Turin does not date to Roman times when Jesus died, but from a much later period. Now, you can read that full article at BibleMysteryPod.com. I'll have a link there. However, it should be noted that none of the researchers actually who reported this, including Tabor himself, none of them were textile experts, and none of them appear to have engaged in much textile research. They were simply taking the design and weave of one first century burial cloth and concluding that all the other first century burial cloths from that area would likely have a similar weave pattern. Now, I guess that seems plausible, but it turns out that it's not true. For instance, Hamburg textile expert Mechtschild Flory Lemberg, and I'm afraid I've butchered her name, is a recognized art historian, and she's an expert on the restoration of ancient textiles. She was able to examine and work on the restoration and repair of the shroud uh, in 2001-2002, and she published a book on the shroud. And this is what she said in that book about the textile weave of the shroud itself. The seam that connects the 8-centimeter wide strip to the larger segment is not a simple one. The type of seam construction chosen clearly displays the intention to make the seam disappear on the face of the cloth as much as possible. This is another reason to believe that the shroud was planned and produced by professionals. The sewing has been done from the reverse of the fabric, and the stitches have been executed with great care and are barely noticeable on the face of the shroud. The seam 
appears flat on the face and raised like a roll on the reverse of the fabric. Examples of this same kind of seam are again to be found among the textile fragments of Masada, already mentioned above. To conclude this chapter, it can be said that the linen cloth of the Shroud of Turin does not display any weaving or sewing techniques which speak against its origin as a high-quality product of the textile workers of the first century A.D. Now, that's from a book called Sinden by Mechschild Fleury Limburg, who is a textile expert and a restoration expert, who says that they're based on her examination of other first century textiles, says there's no reason that I see to doubt that this cloth came from the first century. That's not definitive proof, but when other people are saying there's no way it could have been made in the first century, and a textile expert comes out and says, oh, there's nothing in this cloth that's inconsistent with what I've seen in other first century cloth from the same area, you kind of pay attention. There's another textile expert, a chartered textile technologist, for instance, John Tyre, who says this, it would be reasonable to conclude the linen textiles with Z-twist yarns and woven three-to-one reversing twills, similar to the Turin Shroud, could have been produced in the first century Syria or Palestine. So, I think we've sort of busted the myth that the cloth of the shroud itself could not have been produced in the first century. There's enough textile experts out there who say that, yes, it could have been made in the first century. That doesn't prove anything, but it busts the myth that the shroud has been debunked by the very nature of the weave that was used to make it. And I got to tell you this. I love the shroud. I love studying the shroud. It's very, very fascinating, but I think I've probably learned more about textiles and weaves and things like that than um, I probably wanted to in doing all the research on the shroud. All right, that's going to get us to myth number four. The shroud, and this might be the most um, well-known myth among evangelicals. The shroud was myth-busted by John Calvin, among many others, who demonstrated that the scripture demands two burial cloths, one for the head, one for the body, and not one burial cloth. Most of the evangelical Christians I talk to about the shroud either quote John Calvin, who was an early shroud skeptic, or they quote Calvin's conclusions, which is simply that the shroud can't be real because the Bible clearly demonstrates it's not. So are we going to be able to bust this myth or not? Well, one thing to keep in mind, remember a couple of episodes ago, we talked about the Sudarium of Oviedo. It is long believed to have been the napkin or the head wrap that was wrapped around Jesus' head after his crucifixion and his death. Some researchers say that that sudarium has been shown to have 120 points of coincidence or connection with the shroud and both have the same AB blood type that have been found on it. And some researchers have concluded the only possible conclusion is that the Oviedo Sudarium covered the same face as the Sudarium Shroud. Now, John Calvin wrote quite an interesting anti-relic book in the 1500s, and by and large, I agree with much of what he has to say. He points out that there are so many pieces of the true cross supposedly kept by various Catholic churches that you could build uh, a city out of all of the wood there. In other words, he's saying it's demonstrable that many of the relics upheld by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages were fakes held that, that were used to swindle simple, unfortunate religious people out of their money. And so because of his view of and, and because of his his uh, his firsthand seeing witnessing 
of the church using these relics to defraud people, he concludes that the shroud is also a fake. And so this is this is four arguments he uses to say uh, to speak against the shroud. Number one, there are multiple shrouds, says John Calvin, that are genuine. I'll quote him. He says this: "It's time now to talk about the sudari, with about which relic they, the Catholics, have displayed their folly even more than in the affair of the holy coat." For besides the Sudaria of Veronica, which is shown in the Church of St. Peter at Rome, it is the boast of several towns that they each possess a Sudarium, as for instance, Carcassonne, Nice, Aix-la-Chapelle, Treves, Besancon, and others. I probably butchered some of those pronunciations, sorry. Without reckoning the fragments, says Calvin to be seen in various places. Now, I ask whether those persons were not bereft of their senses who could take long pilgrimages at much expense and fatigue in order to see sheets of the reality of which there were no reasons to believe, but many reasons to doubt. For, For whoever admitted the reality of one of these sudaris, or head coverings shown in so many places, must have considered the rest as wicked impostures set up to deceive the public by the pretense that they were each the real sheet in which Christ's body had been wrapped. In other words, Calvin is saying, there's a lot of these shrouds around. They can't all be real. Chances are they're all fake. That's true. I mean, that's that's a very logical argument. And the only counter argument you can say to that is The fact that counterfeits exist does not at all prove that there's no genuine article. A counterfeit shroud or two or three or ten and rather can be a fairly convincing proof that at least at one time there was a significant genuine shroud. In other words, I appreciate what Calvin's saying. Most of the shrouds, if not all, were fake. But the fact that most of the shrouds were fake does not mean every single one was fake. If you find uh, counterfeiters operating in a small town and they are using $100 bills and passing them around like candy, that means you should suspect every $100 bill you get. But chances are there's still some genuine $100 bills circulating through the town, even if the counterfeiters are operating heavily. His second argument, Calvin's second argument against the shroud is this. The Bible does not record a cloth with an impression on it. In other words, the Bible never tells us that there is a cloth that was wrapped around Jesus that somehow miraculously had his image transmitted to it. And Calvin is absolutely right. The Bible doesn't tell us that anything special happened to the burial cloths around Jesus. Now, that is an argument of silence, but it does carry a little bit of weight. One would think, quite logically, that if there was something miraculous that happened to the burial cloth of Jesus, maybe Matthew or John or Mark, or Luke, or somebody would have mentioned it. But just because they didn't in the Gospels, I would say, doesn't mean exactly that it's happened. In fact, we find at the end of John 21, 25, John concludes by saying this, there are many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. In other words, what John is telling us is not everything Jesus did, not every miracle, not every teaching is recorded in the Bible. And so it could be that this miracle wasn't recorded in the Bible, or it could be that this miracle wasn't noticed early on. And of course, it could be that Calvin's right, that this is pretty heavy proof of the possibility of a hoax. We can consider it evidence for now, but not proof. His third argument is that the grave clothes of Jesus were guarded and left in the grave. This is what he says. Another point to be observed, contra the shroud, is that the evangelists, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do not mention that either of the disciples or the faithful women who came to the tomb had removed the clothes in question, but on the contrary, their account seems to imply that the grave clothes of Jesus were left there. Now, the sepulchre was guarded by soldiers, and consequently the clothes were in their power. Is it possible that they would have permitted the disciples to take them away as relics, since these very men had been bribed by the Pharisees to perjure themselves by saying that the disciples had stolen the body of our Lord? Now, Here's the thing. I think this objection is fairly simple to answer. None of the Gospels record the detail of anybody removing the grave clothing, which could be because they did indeed remove it, but didn't notice an image imprinted on it. It's highly unlikely that they would have left good cloth behind in the grave for reasons both sentimental and practical. Probably somebody took those grave cloths, but the simple fact that the Gospels didn't record who took the grave cloths or anything like that doesn't mean, doesn't necessarily mean that they were left there or that the guards took them. The fact of the matter is it's an argument from silence. I don't think it's a very strong argument from silence. Finally, this is the one that most people consider the big deal, the big check mark, biblically speaking, against the shroud. Number four, objection of John Calvin. The shroud is one cloth, and the Bible clearly shows that two cloths serve to bury Jesus. Calvin writes this way, I shall conclude with a convincing proof of the audacity of the papists. Wherever the holy sidari face cloth is exhibited, they show a large sheet with the full-length likeness of a human body on it. Now, St. John's Gospel, chapter 19, says that Christ was buried according to the manner of the Jews. And what was their custom? This may be known by their present custom on such occasions, as well as from their books, which describe the ancient ceremony of interment, which was to wrap the body in a sheet, to the shoulders and to cover the head with a separate cloth. This is precisely how the evangelist described it, saying that St. Peter saw on one side the clothes with which the body had been wrapped and on the other the napkin from about his head. In short, either St. John is a liar or all those who boast of possessing the holy sedari are convicted of falsehood and deceit. That's probably Calvin's most well-known argument against the shroud and the one that I hear most well-educated Protestants bring up when we talk about the shroud, that the Bible suggests a plurality of grave cloths, but the shroud itself is only one cloth and it has an imprint on the head. On the surface, this might seem like a pretty compelling claim against the shroud, But if you really actually read what the Bible says, it's not quite as open and shut as Calvin would have us believe. The most relevant passage in the Bible to this discussion is John 20, as Calvin mentioned. John 20 verse 6 says this, Then following him, Simon Peter came also into the tomb and saw the linen clothes laying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen clothes, but was folded up in a separate piece by itself. So that's pretty clear, right? According to John's gospel, there were not one, but two burial cloths that wrapped Jesus. One mentioned in verse 6 which is called the athonia, is in, in the plural, and the other in verse 7, a cloth wrapped around Jesus' head, which in Greek is the sudarian. That's where we get the word sudarian. It's a Greek word. Here's the thing, though. Many shroud researchers who are biblical Protestant uh, theological guys like Kenneth Stevenson, Gary Habermas, and even some others like Ian Wilson, Barry Schwartz, and other shroud apologists, they contend that the shroud shows evidence that there was a head cloth wrapped around the shroud figure's neck and head, most likely to hold the jaw in place. It would appear that the Sudarian was not a very significant part of the great grave clothes that wrapped Jesus, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not mention the head covering or the the head securing covering at all. For instance, Mark 15, 46, after he brought some fine linen, Joseph of Arimathea, he took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he placed him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. So there's no mention there of two cloths. 
Luke 23.53 and Luke 24.12. He approached Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea again is the he, and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. Verse 12 of chapter 24. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stopped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went home amazed at what had happened. So again, no mention of the head covering in Luke or Mark. And in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-nine, we read, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. So, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't mention the head wrapping or the Sudarian, but John does. Could this indicate that the Sudarian was a smaller garment, one that would not have left much of an imprint on the shroud, one that maybe didn't deserve a lot of mention? Possibly. But again, I emphasize the shroud itself seems to allow for the existence of a head or scarf type wrapping, as well as possibly ones around the wrists and the feet. So rather than the biblical account disproving that the shroud could possibly be genuine, it actually seems to describe it pretty well. I love Calvin, and I think he's a sharp Bible teacher and agree with him on a lot of things, but I honestly think he missed it on this one. I don't think he's disproved the shroud at all from a biblical perspective, claiming there was two cloths. Indeed, the shroud itself seems to give evidence that there was two cloths and definitely, definitively does not rule out the existence of a second burial cloth. So finally, As I mentioned before, John Calvin was pretty clear that the abundance of fake relics put forward by medieval Catholics also proves the shroud is a fake. And I say that's there's definitely some level of strength to that argument. If it appears that many Catholic churches and unscrupulous preaches, preachers and, and priests were taking advantage of the hunger for relics among medieval peasants, and they were putting forward hoaxes as true. And that definitely should make us look a little askance at the shroud and ask the question, is this just another forgery? That said, it doesn't prove that it's another forgery. So I don't think Calvin has disproved the shroud. I think that myth is busted. Now here's the thing. You can probably tell I want the shroud of Turin to be the real thing. There's a few reasons for this. None of them though are apologetics related. In other words, I don't want the shroud to be the real burial cloth of Jesus because I think that would help prove the Bible to be reliable or Jesus to be the resurrected son of God. No article of clothing or cloth could prove such a thing. Now, that said, I do really want the shroud to be real and genuine in the same sort of way that I want there to be a real Loch Ness monster or an extant Holy Grail somewhere out there to be waiting to be found. Why? Well, the world is a more interesting place with a legit Nessie swimming around in the cold waters of Scotland. And it's a more interesting place with real tangible artifacts from the time of Jesus. Does that desire bias me? (laughs) Probably it does. And I don't want my bias to mess up this discussion. It does make me consider the claims of debunkers with a greater skepticism, however. And uh, I'm not sure that's a good thing or a bad thing. I love John Calvin. I'm quite persuaded by his soteriological leanings in the realm of theology, but I believe his debunking of the shroud is honestly somewhat ham-handed, especially his contention that it is easily proved false by the John 20 uh, argument. I don't think he's disproved it. I don't see where any other scientist or theologian has convincingly disproved the shroud as a medieval forgery. It's possible that it is, but I don't see that it is. 
All right. Well, we're at a little over an hour now. That was a long episode. Like I said earlier, one more Shroud episode coming up. Hopefully this one is not delayed by several weeks. Uh, by my busy schedule. Hopefully we can have it out soon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing to the show. I would love it if you would share it with your friends and review it. Like I said earlier, um, I'm hoping to make this podcast much more regular and consistent and you're sharing it with people and subscribing helps that goal. For now, I will say farewell. Your patience is appreciated. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Shroud. Um, it is not an art article of religious veneration for me, but it is definitely an interesting Bible-related mystery. I hope it is as fascinating to you as it is to me. We will see you next time on the Bible Mystery Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>